0: What you're going to hear today is the product of something that occurred a long, long time ago, 1995, in my ministry life. I had a uh, woman come to me with a friend, the leader of our women's ministry, and the woman with my women's ministry leader communicated to me that she was involved with my worship pastor. And uh, that day defined what you're about to hear today because he and I have traveled, had traveled in ministry together over a decade. He was a personal friend. I knew him and his wife and his children. We had vacationed together. I would have had no idea. And part of the challenge with my congregation was, Pastor, how could this have happened? How could this have happened? I cannot tell you how many times over the last 30-plus years I have heard the words, I never thought this could happen to me. I have a couple of convictions I want to begin with today. Number one, this can happen to anyone. And there's no one that enters into marriage and ministry, my view, that is determined to damage and defame their reputation and the honor of the Lord. I've yet to meet the person that says, I'm getting married, but a few years from now, I'm going to destroy my reputation, I'm going to break her heart, and if I have a ministry, I'm going to abandon it because of some relationship that has promise to satisfy and fulfill me. I want to argue that I've not met the person who set out to betray their promise, compromise their character, or explode their world, but we do. It's actually hard to measure how high the incidence is of moral failure. Someone has said 57% of men will commit immorality, 51% of women and in the same household, husband and wife, 41% of the time, both of them will. Those numbers seem very, very high to me. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but I will say the incidence of immorality is way too high. And the battle for moral faithfulness, my view, is the biggest battle on the face of the planet. Whatever's going on in some war zone around the world is not as impactful to the world in which we live than the failure of moral fidelity. There's a proverb, Proverbs 20, verse 6. It reads this way. Many a man claims fidelity, professes his fidelity, but a faithful man who can find. Housed in that proverb is this reality. Many will claim to be loyal, but few are. The challenge of moral integrity is the greatest challenge for you. It's not your study, it's not your communication ability, it's your integrity. Because your integrity, your moral fidelity, your commitment to holiness of heart invites the blessing of God. And what people need is to see a man who enjoys the blessing of God, not just a student of the word of God, not just a gifted communicator articulating that word, but a man that God is pleased to bless, not because of his talents or giftedness, but because of the character of his heart. Without holiness, no man can see the Lord. Purity of heart is essential. It is the battleground. This session, and if you're here today, and I know a lot of us are, and I'm assuming in part it's because you understand the relevance of this reality. The way I would like to say it, good people who do bad things rarely intend to, but they do. And so will I, and so will you, without intentionality and the application of divine wisdom and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I want to talk today about life saving observations. Why good people do bad things? Because that was the question I was asked as a pastor. How did this happen? And I discovered this passage, not that I hadn't read it. Like you, I had read the Proverbs many times. I want to invite you to Proverbs chapter 7 if I haven't done that already. But it was this study, this sermon, this response to the people in my church that has provided the greatest benefit to me as a man and as an advocate for those who would desire to be holy and finish well. Because this proverb is, it's a morality play. It's the 13th admonitory discourse in Proverbs. It's the most extended session on this subject, which gets mentioned over eight or nine times. This is an issue. But this is the longest section of the scripture in Proverbs dealing explicitly with this issue. And its design is for a father to help his son live a prosperous, productive, and honorable life. And ironically, it's written by Solomon. Presumptively, it was written before Solomon violated these principles. This is inspired revelation meant to help men, Christians, understand how and why immoral things are chosen by people who want to be moral. Why good things happen to bad people. Why bad things are done by good people. That's the way I wanted to say it. All right, let me read the passage. I don't often do this, but I read it this morning out loud at my kitchen table saying, you know what, I'm going to read the whole thing to you. And then we'll unpack it. There are 12 resolutions here, 12 life-saving observations here that I want to lift out of this text. I've been in it a long time, and I'm thankful I get to share it again. It's relevant. It's life-giving, and hopefully today will be helpful. This is the Word of God, verse 1, Proverbs 7, my son. So in other words, the, the speaker says, this matters. What I'm about to say is important because you're valuable to me. My son, keep my words. Treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. And my teaching is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister and call understanding your intimate friend. That they, these words, may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. For at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice. I saw among the naive. I discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She's boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She's now on the streets, now in the squares and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him. And kisses him, and with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore, I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I've found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses, for the man is not at home. He's gone on a long journey, he's taken a bag of money with him, at full moon he will come home. With her many persuasions she entices him, with her flattering lips she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now, therefore, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. May God add his blessing as we hear his word and as now we seek to apply it. 12 resolutions, 12 observations. This is normally two parts for me. We're going to do it all in one, so buckle up. (laughs) Why did good people do bad things? Verses 1 through 5, because they are weak in the Word. They neglect the Bible. Resolution number 1, saturate yourself in the scripture treasure the truth bathe in the bible i want you to watch the words and i'm going to unpack a few things by way of highlight i just want you to notice verse five that they may keep you keep is protect guard like centuries Guard you, that they may guard you. From whom? The adulteress, the immoral woman, the, the foreigner, the stranger. It has to do with someone of a pagan culture who has no Christian or covenant morals. It'll protect you from her. It'll protect you from them. What will? The words will. The words, the commandments, the teaching the wisdom, the understanding that comes from that teaching, they will do something for you. They will protect you. Verses 1 through 5 basically is the prevention of moral compromise. Moral compromise begins when you neglect the word of God. Verse 1, when you fail to memorize it, look at verse 1. My son, keep my word. The word keep is a word for storing, like keeping something in your mind. It's used of grain in Egypt when Joseph stored it for the time of famine when it would be needed, stored in your mind. Treasure my commandments where? Within you. A person neglects the word of God when they fail to memorize the word of God. Memorization should not stop when a wanna stops. Memorization is a means of putting a a remedy, an antidote, a protective in your heart against the day when temptation comes calling. It's like cash in your wallet. When you need it, you have it. Thy word, David said, I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. People neglect the word when they fail to memorize the word. Verse 2, keep my commandments. The use of keep here is not store it, but actually apply it. It's not memorization, it's application. Keep my commandments and live. And watch this interesting phrase, and my teaching as the apple of your eye. This is a reference to valuing the word of God, prioritizing it, and protecting it like you would something that you would call, that's the apple of my eye. Listen to what God says about his people as it relates to Israel being the apple of God's eye, and you'll get the flavor of this term. It's it's colorful, and it's illustrative. Listen to Deuteronomy 32, verse 10. When God speaks of Israel, Jacob, he found him in the desert land, referring to Israel, and in the waste, howling wilderness. He led Israel about, and he instructed him, and he kept him as the apple of his eye. Now, listen to the illustration of that. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carry them on its pinions. Like the apple of the eye are the chicks, the eaglets for a mother eagle, the priority to protect them, to to revolve everything around her role in caring for and protecting what is valuable to her. Israel was valuable to God. Israel was his priority. Israel was protected by God. This is what the wise father is saying to his son. You need to protect as precious the words of God. You need to have a life that revolves around these words. Your priorities need to be driven by these words. These are valuable words. These are life-saving words. These are life-giving words. These are precious words. They need to be the priority of your life. You neglect the word of God when you fail to memorize it, when you fail to apply it, and when you fail to prioritize it and treat it as precious, priceless, and priority. Number three, verse three, this same section. Why do good people do bad things? They neglect the word of God. Thirdly, because they fail to review it. Bind them, these words, on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. You see that over in chapter 6, verse 21, referring to the commandments of the father. By the way, the commandments of the father, commandments of the mother, Deuteronomy 6, is the transfer of the word of God to the children, the covenant children, who would be blessed by doing that word. Parents were instructed to pass down God's word to their children. This is what that is. This is not just good parental advice, This is the precepts of the word of God, the law of God that is to be transferred by parents to their children for the blessing of God. Bind them, verse 3, on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. This has to do, the phylacteries, you know this, left arm wrapped, it would come down, a string would be tied around the the finger, so that those words and the implication of those words were a constant reminder of what God expected, what God required, and what a person would need to do to enjoy the blessing of God. Keep it in front of you, just like your fingers and your hands are in front of you. Put it in front of you so you won't forget it. That's why you hear so often in the words of God, remember this, because you're inclined to forget it. This is an everyday, this is the post-it notes of scripture in your life. They don't memorize it, they don't apply it, they don't prioritize it, and they don't review it. They don't rehearse it. They don't remember it. Fourthly, they don't build an intimate relationship with it. Look at verse 4. Say to wisdom, wisdom comes from the words of God. Understanding comes from the precepts of God. Say to wisdom, you're what? You're my sister. You're close to me, you're family to me. You're call understanding, your intimate friend, the source of understanding, the source of wisdom is to be a friend to you. I bought this Bible in 1980 in the middle of New York City, Manhattan. I served there in a ministry during the summer during my days at Liberty. This Bible's been recovered. This is my friend. This Bible has been all over the world with me. This Bible has lived through good times and hard. This Bible is my intimate companion, and it needs to be yours. I have a good friend who uh, used to play football with me at Brown University. He's Now, at the University of Nebraska, coaching was there 24 years with the Nebraska Cornhuskers when they were like Alabama is today which I'm happy to report because I served in Birmingham. There were glory days for the Huskers back in the 90s. They won three national titles, and my friend who I played with, Ron Brown, was a part of that coaching staff at Nebraska with Tom Osborne, and it was great and great days. Well, he was just out here with me. He has been out here multiple times. We uh, reconnected over the years, and Ron is on his fourth Bible since we reconnected because he carries his Bible wherever he goes. He takes it to the fitness center. He takes it to the restaurant. He abuses his Bible, not because he throws it on the ground, but because he totes it everywhere. I ask him, because I don't carry this one everywhere. I'm trying to preserve its life. I said, Ron, Ron, why do you do that? He said, I never want to forget who I am and what's expected of me wherever I am. When the Bible is your intimate companion, it's with you in your heart and available for your benefit. These words will keep you. I want to ask why In what way do they protect you? Let me offer you three things that I think are biblical relative to why this is so important. Number one, the Word of God protects you by warning you. This is Psalm 19, familiar verses, but when Psalm 19 speaks of the law and the precepts of God, it declares this, they're not only more desirable than gold, but moreover by them, verse 11, your servant is warned. Now listen, if the bridge ahead is out, what's a warning worth? If a terrorist attack is coming, what's a warning worth? A warning is priceless. And when spiritual assault is coming or when the bridge is out ahead and the, the, that's not known and someone makes it known, that's priceless. That's what the Bible does. The Bible is a warning to your conscience. It is a tool to sensitize you to the danger that is ahead of you or the potential challenge. That is coming at you. Listen to J.I. Packer on this subject. He says, an educated, sensitive conscience is God's monitor. It alerts us to the moral quality of what we do or plan to do. It forbids lawlessness and irresponsibility. It makes us feel guilt, shame, and fear of the future retribution that it tells us we deserve. When we have allowed ourselves to defy its restraints. Satan's strategy is to corrupt, desensitize, and if possible, kill our consciences. What the Bible does is it enlivens our conscience. It sensitizes our conscience. The law of God written on your heart and amplified by the word of God written in your hand is the greatest asset you possess to prevent moral failure. It's God's warning system. Did you hear about the Ivanka Airlines flight back in the 80s? Plane took off, crashed in Spain, head on into a mountain. When they recovered the black box, they heard the pilot saying to the synthesized voice, which he kept hearing, pull up, pull up, pull up. The electronics saying, you're too low, you're too low. Eminent challenges, demise, pull up. Recorded on that box is the voice of the pilot saying, shut up, gringo, shut up. That's what happens to our conscience. And what God's word is designed to do is to amplify the volume of guidance from heaven that'll preserve and protect your life. The word of God warns. Can you say amen to that? The word of God, number two, sanctifies This is John 17, familiar real estate, the high priestly prayer. Jesus was praying to his father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Purify them through the washing of the word. One of the great assets of being a pastor is you're in the Bible from week to week. I'm convinced I would have never studied as long or as often as I have had it not been for the role and the calling that I had as a pastor Whether I wanted to or not, Sunday's coming, and I'm not going to be the guy that stands up and has nothing to say, and we're going to do just a praise service today. So being in the Bible has a remarkable sanctifying effect. It doesn't guarantee holiness, but it promotes it. The Word of God sanctifies. It washes you. But here's a third thing, and I think this is really important to get. The Word of God satisfies. The word of God satisfies. It's the ultimate soul food. Psalm 19, verse 10, more desirable than gold and sweeter than the honeycomb. Pleasure, satisfaction. Psalm 63, my soul is satisfied as with the richest of food, marrow and fatness. When I meditate on thee, O God, in the night watches. The word of God satisfies. And if you're not feasting on its treasure, this is what you are hungry. And hungry people eat. Look at Proverbs chapter 27, a proverb I love to apply in this setting because I think it's a relevant proverb related to the core challenge in our humanity as it relates to moral integrity. That is, we get hungry. Listen to this verse. I'll quote it to you, and then I'll look with you at Proverbs 27. This is a, a disrupting verse when you think of it in this context. Well, let me read to you Hebrews 12, verse 16. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. Well, this is Immorality. He sold his own birthright for a single meal. I think that's a relevant illustration to the principle I'm trying to promote today. What got Esau in trouble? He was so famished coming into the field that he was willing to trade a lot for a little because in his view, I'm desperate and I need to take care of my desperate need. I'm going to do what I need to do to satisfy myself no matter what it costs. If you want to talk about the heartbeat and core challenge of immorality, it's the hunger of the heart that drives you to say, I'll trade a lot. Your reputation matters. That's a lot. A good name is to be preferred above great riches. I'll trade that. I'll trade my reputation. I'll trade my relationship with my children. I'll trade my relationship with my wife. I'll trade everything. I'm starving and I must eat. I just find it interesting that the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of heaven, says Esau was an immoral man. He wasn't just a godless man. He was an immoral man, because immoral men trade a lot for a little out of the desperate hunger of their heart. Here's the verse I want you to see, Proverbs 27, 7. Here's proverbial wisdom. A sated man loaths honey. Question, are the Krispy Kremes ever loathsome? They are if you've had too many. I've eaten a lot of... I don't think you can eat one Krispy Kreme. I've got to get to six before it starts doing something good for me. When I retired from my ministry in Alabama, they held a reception for me, piled or stacked to the ceiling was a pyramid of glazed Krispy Kreme donuts in honor of their pastor. That's my favorite food group. How is it, and honey's put for the favorite food group. You get that. Honey is the thing to have. The sated man, saturated man, after I've eaten a Thanksgiving meal, that man, he loathes honey. Now watch the rest of the verse. Verse 7, but to a famished man, any bitter thing is sweet. Even the rice cakes look good. See, here's the point. If the word of God satisfies you, it has, Thomas Chalmers, an expulsive power. The expulsive power of a greater affection. That's loathsome to me because I'm satisfied. I'm not hungry. I'm not looking. That's why Proverbs chapter 5 says the antidote to immorality. In part, it's not just the word of God, it's the wife given to you by God. Proverbs 5 says, drink water from your own cistern. It says, be intoxicated with the wife of your youth. Let her caresses, let that relationship be the source of satisfaction. Because if you're satisfied in that relationship and you're satisfied in this relationship, you're not hungry. It doesn't matter if it's honey, Krispy Kremes, who she is, where she is, not interested. Because the Word of God satisfies. The Word of God sanctifies. And the Word of God warns, and it will keep you from the immoral woman. And a prevention, an ounce of it, is worth a pound of cure. The first reason why good people do bad things as they're weak in the Word, they neglect the Word of God, and therefore the resolution that will save your life is you resolve to treasure the truth, to saturate in the Scripture, to bathe in the Bible. I like to say it this way. Say yes to God and His truth before you have to say no to the flesh and its temptations. You say yes every day, you'll have the power to say no. Number two. I have to hustle. <laughs> good grief I know my competition at 130 is John MacArthur so I'm gonna lose that why do good people do bad things number two they fail to learn lessons from life Look what wisdom does by application, what unwise people don't do. Verse 6, for at the window of my house, I, wisdom personified, coming through the heart of the Father, looked out through my lattice, and I saw. Here's a point I don't want you to miss because it's a proverbial truth. You don't have to learn lessons the hard way. You can learn lessons from others You can look out through the lattice window of your life, make observations that'll change and save your life. You don't have to crash. Others have crashed. Look over at Proverbs chapter 24, or at least listen to the words, verse 30. Here's wisdom talking. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense and behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and I, I received instruction. I discerned a proverb, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. I looked and I learned from somebody else's failure gentlemen listen to me somewhere somehow you've got to extract benefit from people who have fumbled the ball ahead of you you need to ask this question if there's anything that you could tell me what would you tell me so that i'm not living the pain and the reality you're living and there's some themes you will hear harry don't let these kinds of conversations start don't get so close don't put yourself in this position guard yourself. You might hear them say, promote and cultivate and pursue the wife of your covenant commitment before God. Do what you have to do. Don't travel alone. Don't put yourself in a place where you're insulated from accountability. You'll hear all those things. Learn from those things. Good people who do bad things rarely intend to, but they do. Ask them, how did that happen to you? Number three, Why do good people? So the resolve is look, listen, and learn lessons from others. Number three, why do good people do bad things? They have not cultivated and established non negotiable convictions, they are not resolved to be righteous. I want you to look at Proverbs chapter 7 again and notice the main player in this morality play, the main actor, as he is described here in this father's illustration. I saw among the naive. The Hebrew word is the open-minded, open-doored man. This is not someone who is morally resolved to be unrighteous. He's just morally unresolved. Naive in Proverbs means morally immature. He has no clear moral standards to live by. He has not made up his mind. Morally, he's going with the flow. He's open. He's open to anything because he's not closed to the things he needs to be closed to. He's not made up his mind. I saw among the naive, the open-minded man. I saw... One who I discerned among the youths, a young man lacking leb, his sense, common sense, heart compass. He don't have any convictions. It's not that he's setting out to do evil. He's just not determined to do right. In short, he's a situational ethicist. He's going with the flow. He's not committed to evil like the wicked person is, but he's not committed to good either like the wise person is. Morally speaking, he's on the fence, and he's going to make the moral call in the moment. Wise people make the moral call in advance before temptation comes. This is Daniel, Daniel 1.8. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. Job thirty-one, one. I have made a covenant with my eyes. And since I've made that covenant, how then could I gaze at a virgin? I've chosen ahead of time what I will do and what I won't do. Gentlemen, you're an accident looking for a place to happen without convictions that govern your moral choices. There's some decisions you ought to have made ahead of time. I remember as a seminary student at Liberty, Jerry Falwell saying to the seminary chapel, he said this, he said, if she's broken down on the side of the road and she's hitchhiking and it's pouring rain, you do not stop. You drive down the road, you buy her an umbrella, you drive back by, and you throw it out the window. <laughs> Listen, if you don't have a conviction about where, what you'll do and what you'll not do, you'll get in trouble. Amen. I have convictions not going to eat with a woman, not my wife, without a chaperone. I'm not going to drive somebody home, not my wife, without a chaperone. I'm not going to be driven home by someone, not my wife, without a chaperone. I don't care if it's a block. I don't care if it's a mile. I don't care if there's... I'll call an Uber. Uh, I'll do something. I'm not going to be alone at the church office when my secretary is there. I studied on Saturdays. Maybe some of you do. I'd get in early. I'd stay all day. Sometimes my... Executive assistant would come in, and she'd be working to get ready for Sunday because Sundays are a big day. Gina would come in. Harry would say to Gina, one of us has to go. If what you have to do is so important and t- timely, then I'll go get something to eat, but I'm not here until you're gone, and you're not going to be here until I'm gone. That's a conviction. I like her. I trust her. And I'm not accident looking for a place to happen, but accidents happen when you don't have convictions. Amen? So you have to decide ahead of time. That's the point. Why do good people do bad things? So here's the resolution. Cultivate, decide in advance, non-negotiable moral convictions. Listen, here today you're sane. You get in certain kind of situations, you go insane. You want to make your decisions while you're thinking clearly. Number five, or number four rather. Back to Proverbs 7, why do good people do bad things? Verse 8, they flirt with fire. They put themselves in the wrong places at the wrong times with the wrong people. Verse 8, passing through the street near her corner, he takes the way to her house. Look over at Proverbs chapter 5, verse 8. After it talks about the immoral woman, it says in verse eight, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Gentlemen, it's not openness that gets him. It's foolishness that gets him. He's putting himself in an unwinnable scenario. Certain things happen in certain places at certain times. You need to avoid those places. I had a colleague who was a, Director, regional director for missions agency that was housed out of my church. And he had a layover in Amsterdam on his way over to meet with missionaries in South Central Europe. The plane was delayed. They were given opportunity to get off the plane. It was delayed in Amsterdam foolishly, he chose to walk through the streets of Amsterdam because he'd never been in Amsterdam, and out of curiosity, he had heard things about Amsterdam, and he wanted to see if those things were true. The greatest pain I've ever witnessed in my life was his disclosing to his wife that he had failed her in Amsterdam on a wayward walk. That's why good people do bad things. They put themselves in unwinnable situations. They flirt with fire when, in fact, gentlemen, we need to flee it. Listen to Spurgeon. In contending with certain sins, there remains no mode of victory but by flight. He who would be safe from acts of evil must haste away from occasions of it. A covenant must be made with our eyes, not even to look upon the cause of temptation. For such sins only need a spark to begin... With and blaze follows in an instant. Who would wantonly enter the leper's prison, sleep amid its horrible corruption? He only who desires to be leprous himself would court contagion. This day I may be exposed to great peril. Let me have the serpent's wisdom to keep out of it and avoid it. I love this statement. The wings of a dove may be of more use to me today than the jaws of a lion. The devil I am to resist, and he will flee from me. But the lust of the flesh, I must flee, or they will surely overcome me, End quote. Number five. So the, the resolution, decline destructive and most likely to damage destinations. Say no. There's some places you should never be. Certain theaters you should never go to, certain beaches you shouldn't go to, certain cities you ought not frequent, and so there's certainly parts of them. Dangerous places. Number five, why do good people do bad things? They are deceived by the darkness. I want you to look at verse nine. Not only is he in the wrong place, wrong time, in the twilight, that's dusk, in the evening, that's dark, and in the pupil the middle of the night the deep darkness in the middle of the night and in the darkness what's the point the point is what job 24 says verse 15 the eye of an adulterer watches for dusk he thinks no eye will see me here's what's wrong with the dark it deceives you into believing that no one will know That's never true. Look at Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. He watches all his paths. How dark does it have to be for the God who says, darkness is light to me? Psalm 119, or Psalm 139, rather. How dark does it have to be for God to say, I can't see you? Secondly, and this is an anecdotal statement, It's rarely, if ever true, that no one will see you. How do you think people get caught? (laughs) Ask all those people anonymously signed up with Ashley Madison when they were hacked and all those names were revealed, insulated by a lie, a deception that says nobody will know. Listen, a thousand things today would be prevented if somebody thought somebody was watching. Why do you think they put cameras in rooms? Why do you think they put cameras outside of buildings? Because people only do what they do in part because they believe the deception that no one will know. Something else the darkness does it not only deceives you, it isolates you. Listen to this statement. Accountability is the friend of integrity. Darkness isolates you, and isolated people are vulnerable people. You want to turn the lights on. You don't want to be alone if you can avoid being alone in the ministry traffic of your life. Transparency, accountability is the friend of integrity. I have an app on my phone I offered to you. I have nothing to do with the company. I don't make money for saying this. It's called Life360. Life 360 is a free app. It's on my family's phone. It's on my phone. Life 360 allows my wife, Karen, to know what building I'm standing in on Grace Campus right now. It'll tell her where I've been, how long it took me to go, get there, and how fast I was driving. You say, why do you want that? I'll tell you why I want that. Number one, it's a safety thing. It's a security thing. It's an encouraging thing to her to know where her husband is today. But beyond that, it's accountability. And it's not just my wife and my children that have that app. There are university officials that have that app, and I'm on that app. You know why? It's hard to do bad things when you're accountable. I've been all over Europe. It's way better to travel Europe with a teammate from your staff than to travel alone. It eliminates a thousand temptations. Accountability. Make yourself accountable. Make yourself accountable for where you are, what you're doing. Make yourself have to lie. You can beat accountability, but make it as hard as possible. Number three on darkness darkness not only deceives, isolates, it escalates temptation that's why she's called a woman of the night how many women of the day do you know how many day clubs do you know certain things happen at night romans 13:13 13, 13, let us behave properly as in the day not in carousing and drunkenness not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality night escalates evil he's the prince of darkness Turn the light on. Here's the resolution. Always arrange for accountability. Always. When I get home from a trip, if I have to travel alone or during the trip, I'll have people call me. Hey, what's going on? Where'd you eat tonight? What are you going to do for entertainment? Where are you at? Those are good questions. And those are the kind of questions you want. The best Solution altogether is having an ally traveling with you. Number six, why do good people do bad things? Number six, they do not anticipate the aggressiveness, availability, and the appeal of sin. I want you to watch, this is an illustration, this is immorality personified, this is the personality and the quality and the character of immorality. Watch the words, verse 10, the aggressive words, verse 10, and behold, a woman comes to meet him. Verse 13, she seizes him. That's aggressive. She kisses him. That's aggressive. Verse 15, I've come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I've found you. Verse 21, with her many persuasions, she entices him. Gentlemen, you don't have to be looking for moral trouble. Moral trouble is looking for you. Look at Verse 26, chapter 6, For an account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, An adulteress hunts for the precious life. This is why good people do bad things. They don't anticipate the power of a pursuing proposition. I'd been a pastor for a decade. I took in my 80-year-old grandmother. She needed a place to live, and she came to live with me, and my family were close. I'm her only grandson. She was able to drive at that time. She went to the mall, the gallery in Birmingham. I was Monday. It was an off day for me, but it was a yard day for me. So I'm weed whacking in the front yard. She comes home from the mall. She gets out of the car. She walks around the front of the house. We greet each other, ask her about her trips. She asked me how I was doing. She says, oh, by the way, before I go in, I found this on the ground by my car. It's called the Diamond Collection. It was a DVD. Okay. So I set it on the steps, and she went into the house. I carried it up to my part of the home, and I I put it on my VCR video audio equipment cabinet and forgot about it. A week later, Monday, I'm home by myself. I went in to watch Sports Center. I turned everything on. I saw the diamond collection, the DVD on the top of my audio cabinet. And I said, I wonder what this is. Let me tell you what it wasn't the promotional stuff for the jewelry salesman at the mall. This was pornography. This was gross pornography. This is, I can't believe this, and it makes me really mad pornography. This is, I take it out of the machine, I go around to the back of the house, I get a sledgehammer, and I beat it to death. Because it's not fair to have an 80-year-old grandmother who loves her pastor's son hand-deliver porn to him. You say, what is that? I could tell that story in one form or another a dozen times. Not just my stories, the stories of other men, not seeking it, but it seeking them. Listen, this text says it's available. It lurks by every corner. She's now in the street. She's now in the square. She lurks by every corner. You know what that means? It's everywhere. you know what this is? This is Baghdad. This is not safe territory. You can be at church on Sunday, and it's not safe. You need to have your head up, your eyes open. You need to recognize the assault is coming. You don't know from whom. I'm not trying to make you paranoid. I'm trying to make you wise. Pay attention. It's available. How far do you have to go to intersect with an immoral option? Not far in today's culture. It's a click away. It's also an appeal. They do not anticipate the aggressiveness, the availability, and the appeal of sin. You saw it. Look at the appeal, verse 16. I've spread my couch with coverings, that's finery, colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed, that's fragrances, myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. I'm promising fun and a frolic, come let us drink, intoxicate ourselves with love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses, and it's all free. Husband, not at home, not going to be home. Is that an appealing temptation? Well, if you're a male human being, you'd have to say yes. Part of the challenge is we underestimate the power of the appeal. The question should never be, which is more gratifying? Which is, what do I want? The question is, what must I do to survive and to be alive? I've got to say no, not because of the appeal, but because of what I desire more than that, and that is to stay holy, to stay healthy, to stay credible and useful. The decision issue cannot be based on potential gratification, but predetermined conviction. The appeal is always powerful. It's compelling. Look, David on that rooftop or Joseph in that home, Potiphar's house, that was unrelenting pursuit. David on the housetop, alone, isolated, looking. She was a beautiful woman. It's appealing. You got to anticipate that and make decisions in light of that. Here's the resolution. Prepare for a powerful proposition. You will be assaulted. Don't be surprised. Number seven, why do good people do bad things? They overlook the obvious. They overlook the obvious. Her dress is obvious, her demeanor is obvious. Her attire, her attitude look at her dressed as a harlot, verse 10. That's obvious. Her attitude, she's boisterous and rebellious. What's a godly woman's attitude like? She has a quiet spirit. This woman is everything but quiet. She's boisterous. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, not like a harlot. I cannot tell you how many times people have said to me, I didn't know she was that kind of girl. I didn't know he was that kind of guy. Everybody else did. Here's the resolution. Enlist objective observers, because this is what I've learned. We're not so objective. He overlooked obvious things. Her actions were obvious. Her attire was obvious. She seized him. She kissed him. Something ought to have gone off, said, this is not good. Why do good people do bad things? Some measure of blindness. Some measure of blindness to the obvious Open your eyes and enlist objective observers. Anyone who can see. You want people, this is what you could ask someone. Do you see anything or anyone in my sphere of relationship or in my activity zone that could be a threat to me? That could injure me? I've learned. My staff... They need to be my best eyes. Here's the gift you can't give yourself. Perspective. Objective observers can tell you what you need to hear. Number eight, why do good people do bad things? I'm coming to the end. We may not get 12, but we'll do our best. We'll blame it on the sound stuff. (laughs) Number eight, why do good people do bad things? They're disarmed by devotion. They are disarmed by devotion. I want you to notice verse 14. I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. You know what she just said? I'm a religious girl. I'm a godly girl. Peace or thank offerings were divided between Jehovah and the priest and the offer. Part of the appointed victim was consumed by fire. The breast and the right shoulder were allotted to the priest and the, the rest of the animal belonged to the person who made the offering, who was to eat it with a household on the same day as a solemn ceremonial feast. See one other thing she promised, finery fragrance, frolic, fun, fulfillment, all for free food. Got Food. I'm a religious girl. I've paid my vows. She's cunning, verse 10. That means concealed in heart. She's deceptive. I like, this is a powerful word. Look at verse 13. She's brazen. That means she has a stone face. That means her face is so hard she can act as if nothing is wrong while she's doing wrong. Listen, that's one of the dangers of people in ministry. We can learn the art of segregation of the heart. We compartmentalize carnality. We learn to house things in the heart and cloak it outside. So people are vulnerable to us. This is why why sometimes pastors are trusted that shouldn't be trusted. Because people trust us because of what we look like and we've become brazen There are brazen women in your church that can suggest things and do things that ought never be suggested or done. Don't be pacified by apparent piety. Apparent piety paves the way for impurity. Say that fast. It appeases the conscience. It disarms the victim. Surely this can't be wrong if this religious person is promoting it and willing to do it. Beware of any voice Though from the most revered quarter that manifestly encourages carnal indulgence, don't be deceived by carnality. So here's my resolution. Discount outward devotion. It may be a mask to deceive. There are predators in the church. Here's a word of advice. Look for carnal leaking. Leaking. Remember John MacArthur said to me on a trip we took together after a major evangelical fumbled the ball morally, he said, Harry, you cannot compartmentalize carnality. If you see it over here, you can guarantee it's over there. You see carnality in material pursuits, you know there's carnality and immorality in the heart. You can't compartmentalize it. Look for leaking. The jokes they say, the things they talk about, the shows they watch, the places they go. If carnality is the aroma of those expressions, write it down. Whatever devotion they promote isn't a reality in their heart. Do not be deceived. Number nine, why do good people do bad things? They're exposed by ego or they are hurting of heart. This is easy to see. I want you to notice one of the great tools this woman implements. It's the tool of flattery. Verse 5, she flatters with her words. Notice what it says, verse 15. She's flattering. I've come out to meet you. I seek your presence earnestly. Verse 21, with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her smooth, flattering lips, she seduces him. Now, for the sake of time, you know what flattery is? It's inflating. It's inflating you, telling you what you want to hear so that it can get what it wants. Flattery is manipulation. And you are prone to flattery when your value is not in valid places. Seek self worth in the Savior. Find value in valid ways. My value is not defined by the sermon I'm preaching today. If you like it or you don't like it, it can't define my value, whether the church is growing or not growing, whether people like me or don't like me. If you're a pastor, you know a good bit of the time somebody's not going to like you. You cannot allow your ego to be defined by things that don't define it. I belong to God, I've been saved by God, I've been called by God, I have value in God, and I find my value in that. And if my ego is bruised, my wife doesn't treat me like I'd like her to treat me, I don't go home and nobody applauds. You've been there. You know what you are right there? Vulnerable. Get help for your hurting heart. Some of you have been through hard seasons. Just know this, you're vulnerable in those seasons. The only place to find real value that lasts is where real value is found. Your identity in Christ and your calling in Christ. You can never, you're never in every every preaching day winner. Don't let your ego or its injury expose you. Finally, number 10, I say finally. Yeah, you need to walk over to the sanctuary. Number 10, why do good people do bad things? They're inclined to impulsiveness. Verse 10, this powerful word that, excuse me, verse 22 rather, this powerful word suddenly, that's in the blink of an eye. It's an impulsive decision. Suddenly he follows her. People who do bad things are inclined to be impulsive. They don't learn to dominate their desires. Verse 25 says, do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Do not let it happen. You know what? 1 Corinthians 9, Buffet your body. Dominate your desires. Here's a final statement. Say no when you could say yes. When you're at the buffet table of life and you could eat another one, you go out here and they're offering plenty of them, say no just because you need to. Teach your body that it doesn't rule and dominate. People who give in to the sensation and the desires of the flesh will always give in to the desires of the flesh. If you can't control your eating, you're not going to control your moral choices. Fast. Not just to get right with God, to get dominance over your body. Why do good people do bad things? They don't think they're going to get caught. They don't think it could happen to them. They don't ponder the probability. Many numerous, verse 26, many numerous, many victims, many strong men. If David could go down, Harry can go down. If that pastor can go down, you can go down. Ponder that. Let it sober you. Here's my final statement. If you don't think it can happen to you, it will. He that thinks he stands, take heed. head up, eyes open. You better pay attention. You will fall. Father, thank you for the time today. It's flown by. Thank you for these men. I pray that seeds of conscience will have been planted, that'll bear fruit, that protects hearts, pulpits, families, and lives. To the end that Jesus Christ is honored, families are blessed, and all are benefited for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, and all God's men said, Amen.